Hello, welcome or welcome back to the Technocast, a podcasting community of arts and humanities research students. Allow me to introduce myself, I'm Joe Dukes, I'm a PhD researcher at the Centre for Transforming Sexuality and Gender at the University of Brighton, and together with my colleague Ashley Riley Thornton, I convened the recent conference, Outsiders 2022. Outsiders was a postgraduate and community conference aiming to make space for conversation and transformation at the queer intersections of sex and gender research and community work. We hosted 46 academic presentations and eight community workshops, and it's an honour and pleasure to share with you just one panel from the conference. Thank you to Polly, Julian and Felix for inviting us to do so. The panel, Vision, Perception and Outsiders, focuses on how we see, think, and feel things like marginalisation, invisibilisation, and exclusion, as well as how we, as queer people, can resist, upturn, or subvert those forces. In today's podcast episode, Laura Bullesbach and Rebecca Meller, assistant curators of the Science Museum Group's One Collection project, workshop the archive, discuss the work of interpretation, and share the queer potential of old leather. They've also come equipped with a workshop activity that both you and I get to participate in. So I hope you enjoy. Hi everyone, I'm Rebecca. Hello, I'm Laura. Before we begin, we would like to express that we will be discussing themes that may be difficult for some audiences. Please take care when listening to this episode. Picture the Science Museum. It's Friday. A massive steam engine churns and splatters in the central hall, providing a noisy backdrop of kinetic energy. Fuel, if you will, to explore something new, or perhaps something old, and make discoveries and rediscoveries about our shared experiences of science and technology. There are hundreds of school children running backwards and forwards in the space gallery. In Wonderlab, Mike's explainers demonstrate how to bounce an uncooked egg on the floor while in the background, sounds of cheers as kids test friction using our slides. And maybe adults are discussing the memories of the weird and wonderful objects in the Making the Modern World galleries. But as assistant curator to the One Collection project, the museum occupies a very different space for us. In the Victorian vaults and basements of Blythe House in London, we are often in quiet, echoing rooms filled with the objects that, for whatever reason, are excluded from this public-facing bustle. Many people might be aware that at any given time, there are thousands of museum objects not on display to the general public. In the Science Museum Group, 300,000 of these objects are currently moving from London to the Science Museum Group's National Collection Centre in Rawdon. Think about what that means in terms of stories being told or not told in museum spaces and how some histories have been outside of popular narratives of history and science. As we move these collections, our role is to provide curatorial expertise during this process, as well as to engage audiences with the stored collections, large parts of which have never even been visible online. For us, this is often an opportunity to ask questions of the objects in our collections and present them in new, exciting and often challenging ways. How are queer stories told through the objects of the Science Museum Group's collections? And also, how can they be uncovered? These are great questions. In the past, LGBTQ plus perspectives have to a large extent been excluded from museum collecting and object interpretation. There are a few different explanations for this. 
One of them is the legacy of Section 28, which was a legislation that prohibited the promotion of homosexuality in the UK. Another reason are the biases of the people that have historically been employed by museums and other heritage organisations. Before we look into this erasure of queerness in more detail, we should explain how museums produce and record information about their objects in the first place. The Science Museum Group uses a collections management system called MIMSI-XG and follows something called spectrum cataloguing procedures. These procedures define how collections should be managed in a museum. Depending on the knowledge we have about an object, a database record includes information such as its unique object number, the place it was made or found in, who made or used it, what materials it consists of, its size and so on. It also contains a description and an interpretation. The aim is for the data on a record to be continuously improved, so the information is never static but keeps evolving. It's important at this point to unpick some of the museum jargon that we use daily. While it may seem obvious at first, defining what we mean by interpretation is vital within our roles. Interpretation expresses how we present information to museum visitors and guests, what stories we choose to tell and how we choose to tell it. This should not be confused with an object's description, which is primarily used for identifying an object by distinct visual features. Interpretation differs by creating and telling narratives. It often has a didactic element and is produced with a specific audience in mind. The major question interpretation wants to answer is, why is this object significant? Taking this a step further, in the museum of today, interpretation can take varied forms on different platforms. For example, compared to a digital collection audience, in-gallery labels need to convey information immediately and in a much more grabbing and specific way for in-person visitors. Digital audiences, however, can experience the same object in a radically altered environment. More information can be provided with an object, particularly with the addition of tags and hyperlinks. Visitors and researchers can filter the objects presented to them based on their own specific interests, or explore unknown rabbit holes of the digital collections. As assistant curators, we often seek to engage visitors in this way by delivering object interpretation via digital records, collections online, and various digital outreach platforms, including social media. The information our database record contains comes from a variety of different resources. This can be collections documentation and physical catalogues or files for objects whose acquisition predate the digital collections management systems, pre-existing knowledge of the museum staff collecting and cataloguing the objects, or from new research conducted by the people working with them in various different ways. The information in the database is at the heart of a museum's operations and forms the basis of most other activities. Without it, there would be no galleries, exhibition, learning resources or collections research. Now the thing is, the data that all this is built on is often assumed to be objective and neutral. This, however, is not only untrue, but also quite a dangerous view to have. From the moment someone identifies an object as being worthy of collecting and preserving for the future, this decision is political and subjective. Equally, so is the decision of why to collect it and what information to record about it. Objects generally don't only tell one story, but have the ability to tell several ones. That's because they have multiple ontologies. Which story to record and to tell is therefore an active choice 
made by someone and this choice is informed by the person's identity, experiences and biases. Now, think about who the people were that have historically had the power to shape museum collections. What image comes to mind if you try to picture a museum curator? Exactly. For most people, this will probably be a white, cisgendered, elderly gentleman in a tweed jacket. And while this stereotype of course isn't strictly true anymore today, it probably isn't far off the truth when it comes to curators of the past. Considering this, it is therefore not too surprising that LGBTQ plus aspects of objects, as well as those of other marginalised groups, have very often been disregarded and excluded. Objects that are not explicitly linked to LGBTQ plus lives, like pride badges or flags, are often automatically read as straight. Unless proven otherwise, the people connected to them are believed to have been cisgendered and heterosexual. Since queer meanings have often been overlooked, most collections hold artifacts that could be read as queer without people being aware of it, including the Science Museum Group's collections. So, we made it our goal to bring out these overlooked queer narratives. A practical example of how we have done this is a blog I wrote about Alan Hart. Alan was a US-American pioneer of tuberculosis research in the early 20th century, and also the first known trans men to undergo gender affirmation surgery. The Science Museum group holds no objects that explicitly relate to him or his work, so I used models of x-ray units and public health campaign posters in our collections as catalysts to tell his story. Apart from relating to the history of tuberculosis, which was the reason the objects were collected in the first place, they then also acquired a second meaning, a queer meaning. Following on from this, we started to collate a list of objects in the collections that could be read as queer for different reasons. These reasons include objects that are related to queer persona or history, designed for or by the LGBTQ community, that are highlighting societal ideas about gender and sexuality, or that are reflecting queer symbolism. So to demonstrate this process, we would like to introduce you to object 1920-141 backslash 1, described as an old leather fire bucket, which is available to see on SMG's collection online. At first look, this object might not be an obviously queer object. It is a tired looking black leather bucket attached to a curved handle projecting from its top rim. On its front, in bright colours of oranges, reds, yellows and a splash of white, stands the worn image of a head in profile of a horse-like character. Its fiery mane swirls around it with tendrils of flames and a horn projects at a harsh angle from the character's head. The paint is clearly flecking away from years of age and use, though you can just make out a few letters in large, windy calligraphy reading F.P. Anyone attending Pride events over the last few years is sure to recognise this popular queer icon, the unicorn. In the original context of the fire bucket, made in England during the 19th century, this unicorn most likely has a totally separate meaning to its flamboyant 21st century descendant. It is possibly related to the royal crest, which uses the unicorn to represent Scotland and as a symbol of power, strength and purity. Or it is simply a business logo for a fire insurance company with personal relevance to the company's founders. However, to a queer audience, the unicorn is a symbol that is equally meaningful 
and in this instance is unintentionally present in an object that constructs our shared lived experience. The unicorn's links to rainbows, uniqueness, magic and its untamable nature make it a perfect symbol to many of the joyous experiences of queerness. And these features also make the image highly marketable and easy to commercialise, much like other mythical creatures such as the fairy or the mermaid. While for many this is an exclusively positive symbol, the unicorn may also be a term or image that causes unease to some in the queer community, as it can be used to describe the hypersexualization and fetishization of bisexual or pansexual people. When we presented this object to our colleagues, it was pointed out that we should also be thinking about how the material of leather can be understood as a significant symbol. While the material composition of this bucket was chosen for primarily practical purposes, leather has a specific meaning from a queer perspective. The leather culture has been a long-standing subculture in the LGBTQ community, a point we would have missed had it not been for collaborating with our colleagues and people with other experiences. From a queer lens, this bucket has become a significant symbol. Reading it as a queer object has uncovered a way of interpreting an old leather fire bucket that is novel, powerful, complex, and represents the responses of a wider and more diverse audience. Discovering all these stories and bringing queerness inside the Science Museum Group's collections is an exciting and wonderful task, but it isn't a purely joyful one either. For us as LGBTQ people, Researching queer history means researching the history of our own community. This blurs the lines between work and our own lives, making it a deeply personal undertaking that requires a lot of emotional labour. The barriers queer people often face when striving to make changes within the institutions, like rejections, lack of funding, and constant need to justify the importance of digging up queer stories, then begin to feel very personal. You might have also noticed the content warning we gave you at the beginning of this episode. When we work with our collections as assistant curators, there are no such warnings. Often, we discover objects that are linked to traumatic aspects of our queer past and present without being prepared for it. Encountering objects like conversion therapy machines and AIDS awareness posters can trigger an abundance of emotions that then need to be dealt with. While we certainly can't offer perfect solutions to these challenges, we would like to finish by sharing some ways we have been able to manage them and to express our hopes for the future. One of the most important ways of coping when exploring these difficult themes is to build relationships and networks for support. In our case, we have been able to develop the Science Museum's Gender and Sexuality Network, or GSN. We founded the GSN this year because the Science Museum was lacking a forum for staff members interested in exploring issues of gender and sexuality in their work and in our collections. It is an interdepartmental space for people to exchange ideas, discuss best practice, and together create more visibility for the LGBTQ community and other traditionally marginalized groups. Building these networks also enables us to understand and mitigate our own limitations and biases. We are more able to sensitively and appropriately learn from and to promote the voices of colleagues, community groups and other people with different experiences to our own. It is safe to say that the work we have been doing thus far has been made infinitely better by their collaboration and involvement. So a massive thank you to the GSM members and our other supporters. After all, no curator is an island.
The Science Museum Group's mission is to inspire futures and to engage audiences in STEM. Visitors who cannot see themselves represented in our museums cannot be inspired. Reassuring members of the queer community that they belong in these spaces is therefore crucial. And hopefully, today, we have inspired you to start seeing things queerly. Rebecca and Laura, thank you so much for this, this audio piece and taking us on a journey through the archive and beyond. I guess it would be really helpful to hear about the context of the workshop and how you came to connect the work that you're doing with the Outsiders Conference. So when we, so a lot of our work has been primarily trying to get out these stories that were significant to us as queer people in the museum. And when Laura stumbled across this fantastic description of pretty much exactly what we were doing, just in a wider sphere, um, it seemed like a great way to get our work out to people who it might not automatically occur to in a, a museum context. Yeah, it, it seemed like a great way to actually get some practical research that could Im inform our work. I was really struck in your paper by the way that you observe the archive as full of things that are invisible. You just mentioned there kind of bringing this work out to, to be seen. I noticed an interplay between the archive as full of invisible things, but also as something that can be used to visibilize histories and experiences. Can we think about visibility politics in, in this way or in this work? I think maybe we should start by making, well, clarifying the difference between an archive and a museum, because that is something that happens really commonly, so people mix up what an archive is and what a museum is. The Science Museum group has a museum, an object, collection, storage, and an archive, and we don't actually work in an archive, because for us, archival things or archival materials are usually 2D materials, so compared to our 3D objects that we have. So we do consult the archive, but usually to find background information or more technical information about the objects we have. It's interesting because we both come from very humanities-based disciplines. So I'm an art historian and classicist by training. And so the visual is something that I'm very comfortable with. And I think a lot of people in the museum sector and heritage sectors generally are. And so starting from that point of visibility, the visual, visual arts. It's being challenged more now, as it should be, but I do think that there's a long way to go. In terms of visibility politics, there is innately in any kind of interaction, display, a choice that's made. There's always a, a hierarchy, whether that's intentional or not. When we're dealing with the visual, you know, people are always going to recognise one artist over another. People are always going to connect with something that they've seen a million times, you know, whereas they may need to do a bit more research for something else. And I feel like as curators, we're in this wonderful place where we have this, this ability to do that research and present it and sort of challenge these previously held ideas or standards. There's a lot of work being done in museums today that's sort of a, a really challenging just making things visual and a lot of that has to do with how we can display that of course I think a lot of that has been challenged with Covid because it's hard to get that kind of full experience of the museum or the archive when you have to do it from your living room or your study. Um, so visual has taken another role again in the digital. This kind of leads back to the question that we asked in our presentation of like how do we choose what we want to make visible 
in the museum. So in our roles as assistant curators, for example, part of the One Collection project is to take images of every single object that we have. So everything will be put up on collections online on the website and people can choose what they want to look at later. But then that is not everything. So what we choose to put in an exhibition, what we choose to put in a gallery, what we choose to write blogs about, what we choose to give enhanced cataloging to, that all depends on what we think is important. It all depends on who actually does that work and who works in museums, because even if we attempt to be super inclusive and even if we attempt to bring in all perspectives, we can never do that because we are all informed by our own biases and experiences. Even Rebecca and I can be approaching these collections now and say we want to look into all of those queer perspectives, but then we're also informed by our own sexualities, our own backgrounds, our, um, yeah, everything really. Even if we attempt to be as inclusive as possible, there's always going to be aspects that we just can't see because we don't know about. We need to have like a really diverse workforce and we need to engage with other perspectives and kind of you know, have that exchange between different communities and different people. I enjoy the reminder of that things begin in, in this process as kind of 2D. And it has me thinking about the function of the collection or the value of the exhibition space as a particular area where we can actually get to grips with the three-dimensionality of these objects. Laura, you, you were just mindful then of the things that maybe we still can't see in the way that we work. And it had me thinking about how I was visualising and picturing the leather bucket and thinking about how it would smell or how it would feel, that like familiar feel of leather. And I wonder if in your work you're reflecting in, in this process on how we might like feel history and how as queer people we might feel invested or satisfied or dissatisfied with different kinds of history. That is, I think that is a really big question in when it comes to working with collections in general and how we approach them and also how we make them accessible. Because one way is obviously exhibitions and galleries, online content and stuff. But then if we think about galleries, it's probably maybe only 2% of a museum's collections that are actually on display. And the objects that we work with have really often never been seen by any one. During the One Collection project, then the goal is to open this up for visitors one day so people can actually come and see those collections that don't make it on display. But then again they could walk through like the shelves and they can maybe smell them and they can see them but they still won't be able to touch them or hear them. And I think these are also discussions that have become quite big in um, the recent years for example of ethnographic collections and when source communities come into museums and they engage with the objects that come from their communities, but they are forced to wear gloves, for example, if they get to touch them. Because our role as museums has for a long time been to preserve objects for the future. And that means that we have to keep them safe. And if people touch them or like, you know, the humidity is too high, then that is a danger to the objects as materials. But then the question is, is that even the most important thing? that we preserve them, or is the most important thing that we let people experience them? So is it more important that we keep something and it's not changing, it's like preserved like it was 100 years ago, or is the most important thing that we give it back to communities? And I think these are really big questions. And a lot of museums are engaging with this stuff in different ways um, and these big issues, you know, so for instance, there might be handling collections, just starting to really engage people with touching and feeling and having a direct moment with an object. But in some ways, it's often thought of that these objects are museum sacrifices that we know that they're going to to be disintegrated but that doesn't mean they're any less important as objects because in so many ways they're actually gaining 
more experience, more cultural capital even, by being part of that collection. This is a a hot topic, the how do we get people to experience. And even, you know, when you talk about things like the smell, I think is so evocative for people. Some experiences will have started to introduce perfumes and smells to get you sucked in, but that is also a choice. You know, do you choose to do the nice perfume or do you choose to do the smell of the sewer? And that makes a huge difference with how you experience, you know, history. And as I recall, you've brought an activity with you for us to kind of experience an object kind of in that way just now. So should we give it a go? Yeah, let's give it a whirl. How we did this was it was to sort of discuss how interpretation can really change your experience of an object, even just visually. In the workshop, we had four different objects for people to engage with. But for you, we just chose our favourite one. And that was the favourite from everyone. Exactly. Everyone loved this object. So what we're going to do is that I will give you a really basic, only physical description of the object we will be talking about. And then it would be great if you could just share your initial responses with us. And I guess listeners can also follow along with this activity at home as well. Please do maybe write it down um, and see how your responses change. It, It really does make a huge difference. The object we will be looking at is a clear plastic bag containing about 100 blue rectangular bricks made of plastic with cylindrical bumps for attachments and holes in the bottom. Can you visualise something there, Joe? Yeah, Lego bricks. I feel like I, I never had a big collection of Lego when I was a kid, but I definitely had friends that were Lego children. There's a whole repository of experience just there in itself. I definitely was a Lego child, so I definitely shared this response. Some of the initial responses that people gave us were exactly that, childhood memories. They were also, because we don't describe these as Lego initially, we're just doing a description. Are these Lego? Where does branding come into this? Um, How do we immediately identify? And then also we asked, why do you think the Science Museum collected this? And why do you think we've included this in a discussion on queer histories? So we got some really great discussion from that. Maybe blue. These are blue and gendered colour. So there was already quite a lot coming out, just with no real information. And I suppose if I think back, I have an immediate association of Lego with this thing that I now understand to be STEM. Maybe that really is just because of the kind of kinesthetic construction, along with the gendered aspects of Lego as kind of thinking it is always kind of a boy's thing and then this masculine association with STEM. Maybe I would need to sit for longer to kind of remember or like re-experience how, how those assumptions came together. Because at the same time, if I think about a construction block, It's a square of plastic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. One reason that we did this activity the way we did it is that it kind of resembles the way we approach objects when we see them. So we sometimes we have to work on a collections issue and then we just go into a room and we find the shelf and we look at the thing. Um, Really often we just don't know. We have no idea. (laughs) We have no idea. We have no information whatsoever. We can't be specialists in everything. Exactly. And then we need to just find out what it is. And then we look at it this way, we're like, right, it's a clear plastic bag, it has blue little bricks in it, but what are they? This is kind of how it starts, and then we get some clues, and then if we, for example, find out, right, this is Lego, then we go and can do research on Lego, and then we kind of gather more and more information that we then later base our interpretations on and our cataloguing. Shall we move on to the giving you a little bit more of a queer context? 
Yeah, I'd love to hear it. The first fact that we shared with people is that actually Lego bricks, just like other connectors and fasteners, so like screws, are described with um, gender terminology. So if you if you picture a, le- um, a Lego brick, the top pins are usually described as male and the bottom holes are described as female. And then actually the process of putting connectors and fasteners together, like, you know, making a Lego brick tower, is described as mating for other technology if a connector for example has both female and male parts to it then that is hermaphroditic and this is like a highly gendered language and terminology and that's actually used today and it's highly sexualized to clarify is that just in terms of lego or are you saying that it's kind of across engineering across a lot of engineering yeah yeah and sometimes apparently we only know this because we spoke to a specialist this can change from country to country as well, how they describe, you know. So I, I think we were told that in, in Russia it was a slightly different shape or it was a slightly different understanding. And so then when they went to were doing the space station, that had significant out- impacts on, on their how they were discussing and how they were debating putting these things together. So this gendered terminology actually really has real world impact. And then I suppose there's a choice of uh, whether to bring that into what you deem to be a kind of official interpretation of the object, especially because it might bring an erotic charge to something that maybe people experience first and foremost as some kind of historical childhood-orientated item. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a bit of discomfort there, I think, for people having that sexuality added to you know their childhood toy. Um, and also, I think, stem in some ways you know that this is supposed to be like a a factual building engineering process that is actually incredibly problematically potentially humanized in a sexual way it's not just about the you know mating process and like the sexual intercourse analogies it's also about how male and female actually it's just everywhere gendered terminology is everywhere and our world is just deeply heteronormative even in areas where it like wouldn't you wouldn't even think about gender and sexuality when you think about a screw or like a connector it shows how really important it is to ask those questions and to think about heteronormativity even in areas where people are kind of like why do you want to discuss gender and queerness in our technology collection who cares actually yeah it is everywhere it is everywhere and I, I think, you know, the second point that we were going to bring out about this, which we told to the workshop members, was the pledge that was made to stop retailing these in a gendered way. So what, when was that? In 2021? Um, they wanted to remove gender bias from their toys. That's Lego. That's interesting how we're talking about marketing and gender and marketing and commercialization of these things. And a lot of people picked up on that, particularly with colour. I think colour seems to be such a hot button issue. It's so interesting to think that the removal of gender is something that falls to a corporation rather than a kind of project that, you know, we are all maybe invested in. As if a for-profit company is responsible for correcting our associations of gender with commodities, or as if it could be. There was um, like a fake news satire article like a couple of years ago of Lego actually producing um, genderless bricks that don't have the pins and the female holes. They were just and smooth. The image they? in the article was just yeah. like a blue. It was just like a blue brick without anything, and it was so ridiculous because it didn't make any sense in terms of like what Lego is. But people like actually jumped 
on that. And there were so many online comments about um, how is Lego now also in this like whole gender thing and everything. And people just really took it seriously. And I think it shows how charged this whole topic is, even when it's something that is so obviously ridiculous. In that example, like you see the, the yoking together of the gender with the function of the brick. Like, as if the brick couldn't function without the gendered assumptions that go behind it. And of course, it's probably trivial or satirical to say, oh, we've removed the gender, therefore we've removed the purpose of this this object, ha ha ha. But in so doing, that sort of reveals that which was there all along. And we're not necessarily kicking up a fuss about gender, rather observing it and how this tiny brick can contain so much in there for us or like, you know, for our relationship with, with a brick. Exactly. I mean, and, and this is why we chose this to sort of represent work that museums can do because look, we've already just had a fairly deep, complex conversation about a pile of Lego bricks in a bag. These things are so personal that we thought it was absolutely important to try and get some of that in. What we find really exciting in our job is that we look at objects that don't look like anything, like the leather bucket was so it didn't like look like anything it didn't have any kind of interpretation or good description nobody really respected it for what it was and then we just got interested in it and made something out of it that suddenly has so much significance um and like symbolic value in so many different ways and that's just the really fun part to find things that look unspectacular and then turn them into something really cool really deep and connecting yeah in the piece that you recorded, you mentioned that there is a certain kind of labour to this and you stressed the emotional labour of engaging with the kind of unexpected in the collection. And I just wonder if there's a kind of lovely or delicious kind of labour in terms of dwelling with these objects and finding the possibilities in them for different interpretations. I suppose it's one thing to recognise where heteronormative gendered assumptions of objects are present but do you find yourself in these positions to actually create or offer alternatives as well and how do you find that i mean we're doing it now aren't we it's um we're so lucky to be able to do this in some ways but i would like to stress that i think that while we may be able to put it on a much more public platform i think everyone has this opportunity when experiencing objects experiencing museums or experience even in your own home you know the it doesn't require that you be in a museum to see a different lens in the objects that you use day to day though do come to museums because <laughs> we, we really you know we, we make our best to sort of like pull out these interesting stories and you know to preserve these wonderful objects and archival materials but yeah it's it's a process that I think anyone can really you know you just have to sit and think and feel we already do have a lot of our objects digitized on collections online. Yes. So it's just, um, you know, if you want to experience this, just go on our website, look at collections online and click through the objects. Because really often that is just what we do. So because these words don't have any queer keywords in their descriptions or interpretations, the only way you can find them is just look at them and see what you can find. So we, for example, have a random object generator Really often I just click on that and I just go through random objects. I'm like, oh, look, there's a unicorn. I'm like, oh, look, this kind of looks really camp. Maybe I can make it gay. <laughs> People can do that at home. And it's just really fun to look out for small things in the objects, even if they're not written down yet. Rebecca and Laura, thank you so much for sharing your workshop with us in this kind of different format. Thank you oh, so thank much you for, having, for us. having us. Yeah, we're really excited about it. 
Laura Bullersbach and Rebecca Meller are assistant curators on the Science Museum Group's One Collection project and co-founders of its Gender and Sexuality Network. Thanks for taking the time to tune into this episode of the Technicast. I hope you enjoyed it, and if you'd like to find out more about Outsiders 2022, then do have a look at our Twitter, at Outsiders2022, or our website, which is linked in the show notes. You can also contact us at Outsiders2022 at gmail.com if you have any questions. Join me again later on in the month when I'll be chatting with our other presenter in the Vision, Perception and Outsiders panel, James Chantry, about their artistic work queering the Lincolnshire Fens. If you'd like to stay up to date with the Technicast and take a look at the forthcoming Call for Papers, then have a read of the show notes where you'll find links to Twitter and the website. Until next time. <laughs>